Welcome to the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. I'm your host, Lonnie Swain, media veteran, content creator, and storyteller. I'm a New Orleans native currently based in Los Angeles, California. This podcast is all about sharing our stories, support, and resources to inspire, encourage, and empower our listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share with at least three people. Continue the conversation online at LonnieSwain.com. Now, let's get into the show. Coming to you live and direct from Zoom, it's a virtual podcast recording, part two of the How Are You series surrounding COVID-19. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Akila Jefferson-Shaw. She's going to be helping us debunk some of the COVID-19 myths. How is it contracted? Are there cures or home remedies that we can be doing to prevent or treat it? And all of the other questions that you may have, we're going to be taking some questions from the live audience. But first, let's get it started with... With Dr. Akila Jefferson Shah, introducing yourself, telling us what it is that you do, and maybe some platform or activities that have been helping you stay sane during these uncertain times. Absolutely. So, thank you for having me, Lonnie. Um, it's been a long time. Uh, Lonnie and I have known each other since middle school, at least high school time, but I am an allergist immunologist. I'm from New Orleans. I am. Um, trained at Tulane, at George Washington Hospital in DC, and at the National Institutes of Health in Maryland. And um, funny enough, I trained under Dr. Fauci, who everybody's been seeing on the news. He's wonderful. And I would say one of maybe the only or one of the few trusted sources at this point with this whole um, pandemic. But I've been working um, at University of California, San Diego for about two years now. And recently moved to Little Rock, Arkansas. I'm probably going to be starting a telemedicine practice just independently pretty soon with all of this going on. You know, most doctors' offices are are relatively closed to in-person visits, so you have to find workarounds for all that. But for the thing that's keeping me sane during this time, I would say Zoom and FaceTime, like all these group chat situations are really helpful because you can't reach out and touch somebody, touch your family, but you can see all of them and you can see them all together, which has been very nice. For sure. We've been talking offline about all of the different sources of information, all of the different videos that people have been coming out with that they've got the cure for coronavirus, (laughs) for COVID-19. Like one of the popular ones that we talked about is you know, putting your head over the boiling or steaming water if you think you have been exposed to coronavirus. And the, the host even mentioned, like, putting a hair dryer in his nose. Seriously, you know, saying wow. because heat kills coronavirus. How true or beneficial is any of that information? So I would say all of that information is untrue. There's no cure for coronavirus or for COVID-19 specifically. There are several different types of coronaviruses. This one is COVID-19, which is named basically for the year 2019. Um, It's, you know, a novel virus. It started out, we believe, in Wuhan, China, from bats and then through another um, type of animal and then into humans. But as of today, right now, there are no cures for it. You know, people have been talking about and trying to do different things to mitigate the um, either your exposure or when you are exposed, trying to decrease kind of like viral replication of, of the virus once it's already attached to your body. All of these methods really don't seem to work that well as far as home remedies, meaning Anything from hair dryers to steaming water to, um, I've heard like hot tea and holding your breath and all these things, none of those things really work against it. The mechanism behind which doesn't really work. So we know that high heat doesn't necessarily kill it. You know, it can happen in cold places and hot places, humid places, more dry places. We know that it can survive on surfaces for, you know, somewhere from a few hours to in some instances, it seems like a few days if you're not cleaning those surfaces. So things that we know kill are soap and water, antibacterial ointments and and creams and hand creams and gels and things of that nature. Alcohol at a certain percentage can kill it. So 60% or above of just kind of rubbing alcohol can kill it. 
but there's really nothing else kind of from a home remedy standpoint that seems to do it. I, I won't get into this right this second, but we can talk about kind of other treatments for it. So once you are sick, there are many, many treatments that are kind of being studied now that are a different story, but these home remedies don't really work. Okay. And so now I'm glad that you mentioned the holding your breath thing, because I did see something where it was like, this is how you test if you have a respiratory infection, hold your breath. And if you don't cough, if you don't do, so that is not accurate. You could in fact be infected or have a respiratory infection, do those things, pass that test in theory and still be infected. Correct. 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 So with any respiratory virus, um, some people have more difficulty breathing than others will. Usually if you have issues like asthma or COPD, if you're a smoker, you may be more prone to having these more respiratory driven um, symptoms. But with COVID-19, we know that many people don't have respiratory symptoms. Some people present just with um, gastrointestinal upset, so like vomiting, nausea, diarrhea. Mm. Some people present with um, just feeling a little kind of down, malaise, like tired, things like that. So the symptoms are very variable. So um, kind of in general, just breathing symptoms are one thing that some people have. But even if you don't have that, you could still have the infection. Mm. And um, kind of a step further, if you do have the infection and you do have underlying breathing problems, whether you can hold your breath 10 seconds or five seconds or you know 30 seconds, whatever it is, is not really a, an accurate test of how well your lungs are working or how well you're getting oxygen to other parts of your body. That's good to know. Talking about how you get infected, one of the myths or rumors was that it was airborne. Is that true or false? That I think is an open question. Right now, we think it is droplet transmission, which basically means respiratory droplets are like when you're talking or you sneeze or you cough, you let out these little pieces of liquid that come out of your mouth or out of your nose. And the virus can live in those little areas, um, in those wet wet droplets that can fall onto surfaces or they can touch another person if you're close enough to the person. Now, there are some studies coming out saying that it's aerosolized, which is basically a much smaller droplet that can travel a farther distance. But that's not the same as airborne. The issue, it's a very like technical term. And so I think people think aerosolized and they automatically get into airborne um, as the mode of transmission, but that doesn't seem to be clear. So airborne, things that we know are airborne are things like tuberculosis, um, measles is airborne. It can travel really, really, really long distances. You don't have to touch someone. You don't have to directly be in contact with them, like sneezing or uh, coughing to give them the disease. That's truly infectious and very, very, very airborne. Mm -hmm. COVID-19, we think is droplet. And we are pretty sure it's probably aerosolized, so small, small droplets. But again, you have to be um, either touching a surface where those droplets fell and then touching yourself, or um, you have to be close enough to a person who's um, transmitting those droplets to you. Okay. And so in that close enough would be within the six feet range. So that range that they're telling us to keep. Right, right. So initially we were saying like three feet, but now it seems more like six feet. There are some studies that in um, some of the COVID-19 wards in different hospitals, so these are in highly infectious patients who are very, very ill, who are basically letting out a lot of virus. It may be even farther than that, more like 13 feet. Oh, wow. Okay. I think I saw you posted on social media about something saying that certain people who are having more severe reactions maybe have received a larger viral load of infection. So can you kind of explain what that means? When I said that, it was in the context mostly of young people getting sick. So initially, when this pandemic started, it was thought that only or the majority of people who were prone to getting very ill and possibly dying were older people with other types of underlying health conditions like uh, heart disease or um, COPD or diabetes. But in places like Italy, um, and then also in France, we started seeing younger people. So people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s also getting very, very ill, um, and in some cases dying. The idea of kind of a viral load um, issue is that, so maybe, let's say I went outside and I went to the grocery store and I came in contact with someone who was sick with COVID-19, but I only had one exposure to them. So I only had one chance for the virus to get to me mm -hmm. versus someone who goes to the grocery store 20 times a day 
and comes in contact with 20 separate people who have COVID-19. So they have a 20 times higher chance possibly of getting that illness. So um, they think that maybe younger people were staying outside, so they didn't quarantine themselves in the way that older people did early on. Mm. Stayed outside, continued to do their everyday things, going to the grocery store, going to the movies, going to the mall, restaurants, clubs, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And that they ended up having higher, um, kind of a higher number of contacts with other people who were sick. And so then that load that they brought onto themselves was possibly higher than if they just maybe had one or two contacts in the community. Okay. Speaking of other people who are seeming to be impacted, especially number one, New Orleans, our hometown is being Mm -hmm. hit really hard. Um, Also the African-American community. And I've seen you posting a lot about that as well. Can you share some of the insight as to why that may be that Um, New Orleans is being impacted so drastically compared to other cities per capita, as well as why African-Americans are being hit harder. Yeah, so we think part of it is possibly a viral load issue. So in New Orleans specifically, the idea that Mardi Gras may have had something to do with the ability for the virus to spread throughout the community um, is one thing. So Again, if maybe you went to one parade, you maybe would have only come in contact with a few people. But if you went to many parades, like most of us do, then possibly you came in contact with hundreds of people who were potentially ill, who could have gotten you ill. So that's one idea um, is kind of this exposure issue. The other thing that we've seen, I think, in New Orleans and in a lot of other cities, so like in New York and uh, Chicago, Um, And especially in cities with high minority communities or uh, bigger minority communities is that a lot of people in our community have underlying health conditions anyway. And we know that in the African-American community specifically, we tend to have these health conditions like heart disease, diabetes, obesity, smoking that are already put you at a higher risk for having a severe infection with COVID-19 or having poorer outcomes. But also in African-American communities, we tend to get those kind of comorbidities, those underlying health issues earlier than a lot of other people do. So on average, um, a black man, if he's going to get heart disease or hypertension or diabetes, tends to get it at a younger age than um, in white communities and and, um, among the white community. So, you know, there we see in New Orleans and in a lot of these places, it's not only people who are 65 and 70 and 80 who have gotten COVID-19 and gotten very, very ill. It tends to be also people in their 50s and their 40s and sometimes in their 20s and 30s who have underlying health conditions a lot of times or have underlying health conditions that they're not aware of. Because we also know that access to care, preventative care specifically, in communities of color is lacking for a multitude of reasons, one of which having to do with health insurance. But another one really is mistrust in the um, healthcare system for good reason. Mm -hmm. Another is things like uh, food deserts and uh, just not having community health centers, not having good primary care in places where people actually live, mm-hmm. having issues with, you know, having to get transportation to wherever you need to go to get good care, to get appropriate care, dealing with childcare issues, um, dealing with all these other, we call social determinants of health that kind of feed into why people have poorer health than other people. And it's not just, you know, the individual, it's not an individual issue, it's a systemic societal institutional problem. Um, So, you know, that tends to affect communities of color, specifically the African-American community, at a much um, higher rate and at a much, uh, you know, harder rate than than it does with other communities. And so I think this COVID-19 is like the, I don't want to say perfect storm, but it's, it's a horrible storm of events that kind of has you know, culminated in, in this big issue that we're seeing, this disparity that we're seeing in, in not only infections, but in severity of infections and in mortality. Mm-hmm. And to that effect, you know, that so many people are being impacted and for so many different reasons, um, I'm pretty sure I have an idea of what the answer to this is, but 
Um, why is it that we haven't done more of a mass testing? Like initially I heard that there were people who were going to be tested and they were being turned away and denied and saying, no, you don't qualify because you don't have these symptoms or you, you're not in the perceived to be um, more at risk demographic, things like that. Can you kind of touch on that a bit about, you know, how people are, how it's being determined who's able to get tested or access to testing. Right. I think um, there are multiple problems there, multiple things that need to be addressed. Number one is early on and now we have a lack of, of appropriate tests, just period. No matter what community you're in, um, generally speaking, in the United States, we have, we don't have enough tests to go around. So um, as a result, public health systems, the CDC, the government try to make criteria to say, okay, if you have these symptoms or if you've had this exposure, if you travel to these places, then you should be prioritized um, and you should receive a test um, when appropriate. You know, with that, we missed lots and lots of people. We know that, uh, you know, upwards of 50 to 60% of, of people are asymptomatic carriers, meaning they never have symptoms, but they can shed virus and they can transmit the virus to others. We know that a large percentage of people have really mild symptoms, meaning they just maybe feel a little down, a little tired, but they're not having the fevers, they're not having the coughing and respiratory distress. Um, and then we know that like that about 20% of people have really severe symptoms. And then from there, you get into people who have need to be hospitalized, need to be in the ICU. And then this even smaller percentage of people who actually pass away. But, you know, if you just limit testing to people who are in that, let's say, you know, 10 to 20 percent who are super duper duper sick, you're going to miss uh, 90, 80 to 90 percent of people who are potentially spreading the virus. So that's, you know, the, the big thing is that if we had enough tests, I think people would get tested. Right. We would offer it to everyone. But we haven't had enough. Now, why don't we have enough tests is another question. Um, there are some, or there were some, uh, reports that early on the World Health Organization offered their tests to many, many countries and that the United States turned it down. I don't know if that's hundred percent true or what, mm -hmm. but you know, that's one thing where maybe we could have gotten testing earlier on from another institution, um, like the WHO and we didn't as a kind of nation, so then we were left in this position where the CDC was trying to develop their own tests, which had many, many roadblocks early on. Then you had private industry trying to develop tests, and then you also had academic centers and hospitals trying to develop tests. It basically was, we started way too late in the game. Mm -hmm. We have way too much kind of red tape um, with regulations and whatnot. And so it's really hindered the ability to get good tests and then also to ramp up testing quickly. Um, and distribute it among different communities across the United States. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, we've been put in a, a terrible position. Now, um, a lot of places are doing drive-through testing and things like that, partially funded by the federal government, partially funded by uh, local governments and, and, and um, state governments. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be working relatively okay um, in some places. Like in New Orleans, they have lots of drive-through testing. But it's it's very piecemeal and I think across the US everything has been kind of piecemeal so to speak and so we haven't had a good um, uh, organized effort to to really combat testing so we know who's infected who's not infected and then kind of stop the spread of the virus from there mm -hmm. and so another thing that I have heard I personally have not been tested but from the people that I do know that have been tested the treatment, if you are not having difficulty breathing or pneumonia symptoms, is simply go home and self-quarantine for 14 days. Is that correct? So there is no medication, prescription, anything that you are given to be treated per se. Right, right. So treatments, there are no FDA-approved treatments for COVID-19, period. Um, in the hospitals, when people are severely sick, they have multiple treatments that have um, kind of their kind of research and it's an experimental in a certain way that have been tried. So you've heard on news reports of like hydroxychloroquine, which is a medication we use for lupus and for malaria. 
you've heard of. Um, they have different types of monoclonal antibodies, uh, convalescent plasma, um, some drugs that used to be used for HIV and other viral illnesses that are being repurposed for COVID-19. But all of those things are experimental treatments. And um, when I say experimental, I mean, we don't know if they truly work or not. We're hopeful that something will work, but we, we don't really know for sure. So, and that's really only for severely ill people. With most respiratory viruses, so COVID-19, influenza, um, other types of coronaviruses, the general treatment if you're not sick, super sick, is to do care at home. And so from that standpoint, it's not all that different from what you would do for most um, respiratory viruses. This does seem to be more contagious, right? It can have much more severe outcomes than a lot of other viruses. But again, the majority of people have really, really, really mild illness. And as long as they're not spreading it to other community members and to family members, usually they do fine with just supportive care at home. Mm -hmm. So that's been the guidance thus far. Mm -hmm. And so this might be the good segue for what are some of the things that you can do if you feel you have been um, infected with COVID-19 or what are some of the at-home treatments that do seem to work or that are recommended? Right. So um, fluids, so drinking water, drinking electrolytes, so things like, um, you know, Pedialyte and all those sorts of things, Gatorade, Powerade, all that stuff with electrolytes to keep you well hydrated is one thing that you should be doing at home. Lots of patients at home tend to lose their appetite. So making sure that you're actually getting all the nutrients in. If you're not eating, you can't fight infections well, and that's well proven. Um, there have been a lot of questions about vitamins and minerals. So things like vitamin C and zinc and um, elderberry, someone mentioned earlier, and all those things. It's not clear if any of those help, but I would say there's no harm in taking multivitamins and making sure you're getting good amounts of vitamin C and vitamin D and zinc in your diet. None of that is going to hurt you and it may help you. But from sort of a scientific um, data standpoint, there's no good evidence that with COVID-19 specifically, any of those things really help. With other respiratory viruses, there is some data that vitamin C supplementation, zinc supplementation, and vitamin D supplementation do improve outcomes, um, decrease the, the length of illness and things like that. And so that may be true of COVID-19. I think we just need to wait for the data to come back. Um, there are many hospitals that are treating people with high doses of those medications. And again, those are in research settings. They're not really kind of things that I would recommend people do at high doses at home at all or without the advice of a doctor, without the advice of your doctor. So, you know, those are things at home. I have a stash of emergency at home, you know, emergency and airborne. I think that they are okay. They give you amounts of those vitamins and minerals. They're not harmful, we know. Is it a cure? No. Um, is it going to be 100%? No. But it's not going to hurt you to do those things. Um, and then for symptom relief at home, usually Tylenol is what we're, we're um, recommending rather than things like ibuprofen and Motrin. If you have a fever or if you have pain um, with COVID-19, there was some evidence that using ibuprofen, Motrin, Elite, things like that may make your outcomes a little bit worse um, than if you just use Tylenol for fever reduction. That's another thing that we're doing. Um, and those really are the main things. If you have underlying health conditions, you have to make sure you stay on top of all of your normal medications. So if you have hypertension or diabetes, making sure you're taking all those things. If you have underlying respiratory conditions like asthma or COPD, making sure you're taking all of your inhalers as prescribed and staying on top of your regular medications so that all of those underlying conditions are well controlled and you're not putting, um, you're not at higher risk, hopefully, of having some more severe uh, illness. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've seen a lot of people joking about is that this was the worst possible time for this to happen because it's also allergy season. Um, so how can people kind of differentiate this is allergy related versus possibly COVID-19 related? Because I think we're all on heightened alert, like, oh, my God, I sneezed. Oh, I can't, you know, my nose is stopped up. Do I have it? And then also kind of how do allergy medications potentially um, treat or um, 
lessen or impact the COVID-19 symptoms or infection? Mm -hmm. it, it's a really good question. Um, you know, allergies, you're right, we're smack dab in the middle of allergy season in most of the United States. Um, allergies, generally speaking, don't make people feel as bad as COVID-19 or other respiratory illnesses or viral illnesses. So with allergies, you'll feel sneezy, itchy, runny, um, maybe a stuffy nose, things like that. But you don't usually feel just completely out of energy. You don't get nauseous. You don't have vomiting. You don't have diarrhea. Usually you don't have difficulty breathing unless you have underlying asthma, which can definitely be triggered by allergies, specifically during allergy season in those people. But usually I, I describe people with allergies as like uncomfortable and maybe a touch miserable, but not mm -hmm. like they feel like they're going to, you know, need to go to the hospital kind of a thing. So it's not as severe. It definitely more so impacts your quality of life for most people with seasonal allergies than anything else. Um, so with uh, things like flu and things like that, then you, you'll have usually fevers that are sudden onset with flu. Um, so within like a day or two of being exposed, you're going to start feeling bad and terrible. You'll have muscle aches. We call them myalgias. You may have a little bit of a cough, runny nose, stuffy nose. Usually you don't get things like itchiness which is pretty much um, very kind of a, a sign of allergies. And then for COVID-19, you can have those same flu-like symptoms where you feel muscle aches and fevers, um, sometimes uh, runny nose or congestion. But then really the most um, alarming thing with COVID-19 so far is, is the respiratory distress. So coughing and then profound difficulty breathing. Um, where you can't kind of get your breath back. And that's when people need to be in the hospital. That's when they need to have some sort of um, support for their respiratory system um, and evaluation, possibly with things like a CT scan or a chest X-ray. Um, and if it's very bad, then more advanced care for that. Um, but, you know, the generally speaking, allergies are uncomfortable, but not so, so bad. Um, and COVID-19 on the bad end can be very, very bad. Now, I mentioned before, you can have those people who are, have really mild symptoms. That's where it gets very confusing, right? Um, or maybe you just have a little runny nose or a little cough. Um, I would say now the best thing is if you feel sick, stay away from other people as much as you can. Um, if you're not sure, it doesn't harm you to stay away from other people. Um, so try to, you know, wear a mask that you don't transmit your respiratory droplets to others. If you have to be out, make sure you're washing your hands, you're using hand sanitizer, and you're trying to kind of keep to yourself as much as, as possible. It's very hard for a lot of people to do that with um, work and other home commitments and things like that, but as much as you can, try to. Um, people with asthma and other underlying uh, kind of respiratory conditions, it can be even more confusing because you may be, like for instance, myself, I always get asthma symptoms during springtime. So like right now, and I'm like, hmm, is my chest tightness this or is it that? Like, which thing is it? So what I think, what I've been telling my patients is, if you have a history of allergies, you've always had allergies your whole life, you've always had asthma your whole life, and your pattern is that during springtime, you have trouble. If I'm playing the odds, you most likely are having allergies and asthma right now. Um, if you take your allergy medications and your asthma medications and it doesn't get better, then that's a sign that maybe it's not what it usually is. Maybe it's something else, a respiratory virus or even coronavirus. If you take your Zyrtec or your Flonase and your inhaler and you feel back to normal, then it most likely is your general allergy symptoms. Um, and the good thing is that most kind of over-the-counter allergy medications work relatively quickly. So if you take them and you have relief of your symptoms, and it most likely is that, and it's safe to continue to take those medications. Um, if you, you know, do it for a few days and you just feel completely crummy and the same or things are getting worse, then you should be checked out by your doctor um, and kind of go from there. Mm -hmm. and, and then speaking about getting checked out by your doctor and also trying to keep in, in mind not overwhelming the healthcare system, um, what symptoms would you say are worthy of going to be checked out or to go to the hospital as opposed to trying to take care at home? 
Right. So I, I think if you're worried about um, COVID-19 or coronavirus, at a minimum, you should call your doctor or email your doctor. So you don't necessarily have to go into the office. And most primary care, urgent care, and even some emergency rooms now have um, pretty good telemedicine or telehealth systems set up so that we can triage patients without actually having to see them first. Um, if you're having severe difficulty breathing, so lots of coughing that's not relieved by anything you do at home, fevers that are not getting any better, or you're just having progressive symptoms, then you should get checked out most likely in person by, um, by someone. My rule of thumb usually from my patients has been let me know before you do any of that stuff. Um, and it's mostly because if we think that you have one of, you know, this contagious virus, we want to make sure we're letting people know before you just show up um, in an emergency room or urgent care situation. Number one for them, so that you expose uh, as little people as possible to what you possibly could have, but then also for yourself, because if we say, well, maybe it's not that, maybe it's something else, um, maybe we should try this before you go there, it's also protecting you from picking something up when you do go to the urgent care or to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. Okay. And now they are talking about a vaccine. Is it true that there are currently no vaccines for like bird flu and Ebola and things like that? And what is the likelihood or the timeline realistically for when we could expect a true vaccine that is effective to show mm -hmm. up? So they're thinking a true vaccine that's effective would usually takes anywhere from a year to like 18 months to make. Um, everything here has been fast-tracked. And by that, I mean the, the genome of this virus was sequenced within just a few months of it starting in China, which is almost unheard of. That doesn't usually happen with infectious diseases. That can take anywhere from months to years to figure out what the genetic makeup is of a virus. So that's already happened. The next step would be to, um, to see what things you can target on that virus to um, prevent it from infecting people. That, to a certain extent, has already been done because they already were making vaccines for SARS and MERS, which are two other types of coronaviruses that cause outbreaks um, in previous years. The issue is that both of those vaccines were, they kind of started production on them and then SARS and MERS went away on their own, right? And so then those vaccines were put on a shelf somewhere, just kind of sitting around, not completed 100%. For a lot of the vaccines that are being developed for coronavirus um, or for COVID-19 specifically, they're using the information and the um, data that was already started with SARS and MERS. So that puts us a little ahead of the curve, a little, you know, to a certain extent, um, to see if, if we can use those backbones to then make a good vaccine for coronavirus. Um, there are, you know, that's within the United States, but then places like NIH, also university systems in the United States, and then also internationally. There are vaccine trials for multiple different types of vaccines going on already. At NIH specifically, they, they injected the first patient with a vaccine for COVID-19 a few weeks ago, and they have about 45 to 50 people in that trial. Um, for most vaccine trials, first you do about 50 people and see, and that's in healthy volunteers, to see how it works, if it does anything, if there are any adverse reactions, things like that. Then you go to a next step where um, you try to give it to a larger population, the vaccine to a larger population, and even in people who have gotten sick with coronavirus before or in the community where it is um, prevalent to see if it has any effect in that way. And then if it seems that it has a good effect and it's safe, then they start ramping up production for um, kind of uh, larger communities. Most of the time that can take years mm -hmm. in general, you know, mm -hmm. um, from start to finish. Here, the, they're thinking maybe it'll take somewhere about nine months to a year we're already several months into this. You know, in the U.S., it, it hasn't been that, that long, but it started back in November, December, um, the whole outbreak in China. So we're, we're kind of trucking along a bit. I think by the fall, there will probably be a vaccine. Um, one of these trials will kind of come out on top, um, and it will be proven at least uh, efficacious enough and safe enough to use in a larger population. Um, and so hopefully by then we have something. 
But the other thing is hopefully by then we have treatments that we know work, um, which is sort of the other other arm of, of everything. And we know, you know, we have antiviral treatments, we have plasma, we have monoclonal antibodies, and we have other types of medications um, that are being used on those seriously ill patients um, with some, some effect, it seems, but we just need larger data sets to see if it's something that should be, you know, prime time for um, the community at large. Mm-hmm. And so usually when a vaccine is created, there's an expectation that this is a virus that's going to be sticking around or like we have flu season and you get vaccines. Is it expected that coronavirus is going to be something or specifically COVID-19 is going to be something that we're going to be dealing with seasonally or on an ongoing basis? Right. I think now, um, yes, we think that there will be another spike probably in the fall or winter time. Earlier on with this pandemic, it wasn't all that clear kind of what was going on. And that's mostly because, um, you know, if you're basing COVID-19 on what happened with SARS and MERS, we would expect it to kind of go away, um, just like those things did. It's been very persistent, partially because it's easily transmitted, partially because it has a um, kind of a long window. So I mentioned flu, usually within a few days of being in contact with someone with flu, you get symptoms. With COVID-19, it can take anywhere from like five days to um, a week or even longer for you to develop symptoms once you've already been infected. So it gives it a lot of time to spread around the community um, before you know that you're even sick. So for you know all those reasons, it's persistently transmitted um, throughout the community. And it's very hard to kind of keep a, a tab on and to kind of stop it in its tracks in that way. Um, and so we think that most likely it's going to kind of, it's, on, it's been on the uptick, it's going to come down, and then it will most likely come back up again. Um, as months go on. But by that point, we should have good treatments for people if they do get sick, and then good vaccines to prevent illness um, in people who have not gotten sick or exposed yet. Mm-hmm. And what is the current uh, stance on whether or not people can be reinfected if they have previously contracted it? Right. So the jury is still out. Um, in China, they started uh, reporting reinfections. Now, they have some open questions. One is the testing for COVID-19, which is predominantly something called PCR testing, which looks for virus particles um, kind of in a blood sample. The, um, the testing um, has a relatively, I would say, high false negative rate, meaning if you test somebody, it's possible that even if they are still infected, their test will be negative. And so the question in China and some other places is, those people that they presumed had negative tests, did they actually truly still have disease? And then when they retested them again, the test was a little bit better and it came up positive as it always should have been. So um, in that case, they wouldn't have been reinfected. They just had persistence of disease and they had a faulty test at some point. Um, The other thing is that people have been looking at mutations of the virus. So viruses, you worry about mutations, which is what happens with flu, which is why we haven't had a good vaccine that can kind of be universal for flu. We always have a flu season. Um, Looking to see if COVID-19 mutates a whole lot. So people are getting reinfected with a new strain. That doesn't seem to be the case. It mutates a little bit, but it's not so much where people are getting completely new infections um, um, from COVID-19 so far. Um, And then uh, the last thing really is that what we need to know is if you've been infected, most of the time, um, someone, you're going to develop something called antibodies against that, that illness that you had. So an anti-COVID-19 antibody. And that's something that you should have in your body so that if your body comes in contact with that virus again, it recognizes it and it can fight it. And it tells you know, all of your cells to start ramping up their army to fight whatever that thing is. It's not clear so far if after you get a COVID-19 infection, when your antibody levels go up, so those things that can, can fight the infection for you, if they go away really quickly after you get better or if they stick around. So if they go away really fast, then it's possible that if you came in contact with the virus again, let's say months later, your body just doesn't remember anymore that it once had that. Um, if it sticks around for a long time, then you should have last, long-lasting immunity to that thing 
which happens in a lot of um, viruses and bacteria, but not all. So I think, you know, we still need to figure out a few, a few things there. But um, it seems like most of those early cases of reinfection, what they're calling reinfections, particularly in China, was most likely due to testing error, not truly due to um, new infections. Mm, okay. And um, if people are, bef- so I'm about to go to questions. So if you're thinking of a question, start getting it together. If you do not want to ask it yourself, you can private message it to me, or you can submit a message through the chat feature and I can ask it for you. Um, the question I was going to ask for the people who are um, testing positive and live in a household with other people, what is the best way to kind of self-quarantine in the household? I've read some things about, you know, designate certain cups or certain um, eating utensils for the infected person, um, certain things like that. Is there any recommendation that you have for that? Yeah, if possible, um, designated room, bathroom, cups, utensils, things like that. It's not always possible. You know, if you don't have multiple bedrooms or something like that, then you can't do it. But if you can, that's really the best thing so that you have your own space um, and you're not coming in as much contact with people in your home. Um, You know, making sure you are washing all surfaces with disinfectant um, sprays and things like Clorox or with, uh, you know, just soap and water even to wipe down all those commonly used surfaces, doorknobs, light switches, all those things that you decrease that, that contact exposure that you have. Um, and then really, lastly, if you really cannot uh, quarantine away from your family, making sure that everyone's wearing a mask at home or some sort of covering so that if you have to be kind of in close contact, you don't, again, spread those respiratory droplets kind of from that, you know, person to person who are in um, really short distance from you. So those would really be the main things. And then again, all the normal, making sure you are, you know, uh, taking your regular medications, you're staying hydrated, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And one question that I thought of, too, that can kind of coincide with that super young children, initially, it was perceived that they really weren't contracting it at all. How true is that still believed to be? So we know that kids are carriers of this thing. Um, But again, it's like many other uh, respiratory viruses. Kids carry it, give it to parents and grandparents, and they're the ones who tend to get um, to have more symptoms and get more sick. Um, There was an idea early on that kids did not get any symptoms at all. And that's not true. We know that we there have been children, infants even, who've gotten sick with COVID-19 in the United States specifically. Uh, It seems like little, like infants do a little bit worse. Kids who are kind of in the toddler range and early um, elementary school do a little bit better. And then as they get older, presumably one reason could be because you, if you're going to have underlying health conditions, they kind of start to show up at that age. So if you're a teenager and you're um, closer to your 20s, you tend to do a little bit worse, um, just like anybody else in the community would. So we know kids can definitely transmit it. Overall, they do better than adults, but there have been reports of children who um, have had severe illness, required intensive care, uh, unit care, and then also who've had um, uh, mortality, unfortunately, due to COVID-19 in the United States. So I got a question. Can COVID-19 be transmitted via or to your pets, cats, dogs? I've heard different answers on both sides. So just wanted confirmation. Yeah, we know that, um, or it seems like people can uh, transmit COVID-19 to animals. So um, there was a report, I think it was at the Bronx Zoo, where um, a few tigers got sick and they thought it was from a zookeeper who was ill with COVID-19 and passed it along to the tigers. The, um, the inverse question, though, is unclear. So can the tiger or the dog or the cat then pass it to another, to a human? That is not um, clear so far. Right now, there have not been any reports that I'm aware of that the animal can pass it to you, but they do have reports that you can pass it to an animal. Anyone have a question? Okay, I have a question about uh, the vaccine 
uh, like you said, they put the SARS vaccines and stuff on the shelf when SARS just kind of went away. What if we know at this point, what's so different about COVID-19 as opposed to SARS and why aren't they, why are they seemingly pretty sure that SARS is not going to reappear as Ebola is now, from what I heard on the news, coming back in Africa and there's only a trial vaccine for it at this point? That's my first question. Why, why, why would you not, I know it's expensive, but are they really sure that you'll never see SARS or swine flu or bird flu again? Right. I don't think they're sure at all. And I, you know, the, the big part, why it was put on the shelf, part of it is, um, does have to do with economics, right? If, if you take your eye off that one thing and it kind of goes away and maybe there's another thing that pops up, then you sort of start to refocus on that. And, um, I think where you're probably going with this and I'm kind of going to is, is that we should do a better job of, um, of not doing that, of having more foresight um, for things that could possibly happen um, so that we're better prepared in the future. Uh, you know, they have offices that have tried to do that within the federal government. Funding has been terrible for it. Funding has been cut for it. And unfortunately, um, this whole situation is kind of a way to, to show that we do need those people who are doing those, you know, forecasting for pandemics and for emerging infectious diseases and all that kind of stuff because there's no guarantee that it's not going to come back. For coronavirus, uh, or for COVID-19 specifically, um, you know, it seems to be following a different pattern, and we think it's for maybe a few reasons. One is that um, the kind of incubation period seems to be a bit longer. So, you know, people don't have symptoms early on, so they just continue to spread it around until they get sick. Um, so it's e a little bit more easily transmitted. And then on a, like a molecular level, it seems like there are at least two different mutations that this particular coronavirus has that makes it easier to, number one, stick to human cells, and then number two, um, be inserted into human cells and then kind of replicate. So those, those are two, two differences that it seems to have between SARS and MERS and um, COVID-19. But I, I agree, we need to do a, a better job of being proactive not reactive with these things. And I have like two other questions. <laughs> um, my, my other one is about the symptoms. Even though we know personally people have had symptoms and early symptoms of losing taste and smell, but yet when you look at the symptoms that are published, published they never include it, even though if you ask somebody, they admit it. Why are they not including it, number one, and what is it about this virus that makes you lose your taste of your sense of taste and smell? So I think why they're not including it, I'm not 100% sure. I kind of on an anecdotal level, the reports of taste and smell loss, I think, came out later than um, some of these other ones. So, you know, I would say probably within the past maybe like three to four weeks, I started seeing that popping up more so than the fever, the cough, symptoms that were really those early ones that were reported. Um, I think on a kind of on a hospital or clinic level, it's very well uh, recognized that that's a major symptom that people have. But I do think a better job needs to be done on a public health side, so disseminating to the general community, that that's something you need to look out for. I think it's something that needs to be a little bit um, better explained so that people know that that's just not a random thing that's happened to you. Perhaps it is COVID-19. Um, why it does that is not really all that clear. So loss of smell can happen in other respiratory viruses just because it's affecting those areas of your um, anatomy. Loss of taste, to be honest, I don't think we really understand all that well. Um, but a lot of times, taste and smell go together. So if you lose one, sometimes you'll lose the other simply because of inflammation of, of those um, different receptors that you have in, in your nasal passages. Um, and, and kind of that's a symptom that pops up. Okay, my last question is, a lot of people think that it came from bats. And based on this program that I saw, a CNN thing that was done three years ago, they talked about another virus being related to bats and their inability to get food, and so they migrated to find food, and it's all related to global warming. Um, 
do you, I've not heard anybody talking about this, any of the talking heads on TV, about how global warming is affecting the reoccurrence, the new viruses and viruses in general, and why aren't we doing more about that? And, and linking the two together for the public so that they can understand that it has, that the whole climate change thing is, is more important or just as big with the animals and the, you know, Iceland and all that other stuff that is really killing us mm -hmm. one way and in a different way too. Right. So we know that like migration patterns and things like that are affected by uh, climate change and global warming and, and um, that inevitably is going to have an impact on the contact that we have with certain types of species. And then also the ability for those species to um, either continue to transmit certain infections between themselves to other types of animals and then ultimately to humans. The other thing though with, uh, with sort of the bat issue and with some of these more unusual animals is that in some places they have like in, in uh, Wuhan, they think these wet markets were a place where lots of different types of species that normally wouldn't be together were able to kind of commingle and then pass their viruses to one another and then ultimately to humans. So that's another thing where sort of in some normal circumstances, we may not even have contact with that animal and that animal may not have had contact with the you know, second or third animal and so on and so forth where the, the whole situation wouldn't have happened. There are some reports I was reading about bats in general um, and how you know, we have to do a better job with bats specifically because it's not only coronaviruses, many other Ebola can have, like many, many other types of viruses that can be transmitted through bats. And so humans having to do a better job of, of kind of, um, uh, of not putting ourselves in situations where we're around certain types of species that we know can have a problem. Or if we do, then we need to be better about doing routine surveillance to see what's going on so that it's not transmitted in that way. For global warming, climate change, we know air pollution. They've had some studies in the past week or so showing air pollution, places where air pollution is higher, tend to have worse coronavirus outcomes. And, you know, all these things, I think, generally speaking, from this COVID-19 pandemic to other things, we have to do a better job as like a society, as a, a human race, as a, you know, a globe to, to combat these things because it all trickles down and it affects literally everything. Um, so it's a good question. Can you give your thoughts on the drug trials happening in places like Detroit? So there have been a lot of um, reports and kind of popular media about um, Detroit specifically, but other, I would say, um, minority communities and concerns that, um, you know, this is another Tuskegee or something like that, which I think is a very valid concern to have. The trials going on in Detroit um, that I'm aware of are specifically for hydroxychloroquine, which is that anti-malarial and anti-lupus drug that the president kind of has, has talked about multiple times in his press conferences and that others have talked about. In France, they had a study early on with about 30 or 40 patients that were ill. They put them on hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, I believe, and they seemed to do better and, um, and kind of resolve their COVID-19 infections and people who didn't. It's not clear. A study of 36 people is tiny when it comes down to it. It wasn't randomized, which is something that we generally do with drug trials and vaccine trials so that you don't have kind of bias of your information of your data so that it's more reliable. In the United States right now, hydroxychloroquine is being used all over the place in lots and lots of ICUs, which is one thing that actually makes me feel better about trials going on in places like Detroit. So Detroit's not going to be the first place where this is happening. It's already happening. But Detroit will be a site where actually good data is collected, which is a good thing. Right now, if you're just giving people medications kind of because we, we don't know what else to do without actually collecting data, without doing randomization, without trying to take those biases out of the situation, then we, we can't interpret it kind of on the back end. What I understand they're trying to do in Detroit is a more systematic way of giving the medication so that everything is accounted for. And so that on the back end, we can actually interpret it um, with good scientific validity to know if it truly works or doesn't work. But I do want to say Detroit is not the only place that's happening. I wouldn't kind of compare it to something like a Tuskegee or something like that, which is always on the front of my mind. And I know is on the front of a lot of people's minds. It's a completely different sort of situation. This is already happening. 
we're just trying to be a little bit more careful about how to record everything so that we know what's truly going on when we get all the results. Okay. Anyone else have any questions that they'd like to ask? Okay. When you talked about the Tuskegee thing, and it's something that I'm sure you know that everybody's brought up, what, if any way, if it's even possible to tell if this latest strain of COVID-19 could have been man-made or manufactured. Yeah, I don't know how we would even be able to figure that out. So far, all the, you know, all the public health surveillance shows that it came from Wuhan, China. Now, could it be something else? I don't know. But I think it would be extremely hard to, to track that and to prove that. And so far, all the information we have points away from that. So that's why I would leave it. Okay. Um, I just thought of one quick question. I read that last week was supposed to be a very pivotal week where everyone should even avoid going to the grocery store um, just because there were expectations that a lot of people were walking around asymptomatic, as you said. Um, So do you think that realistically, we should continue to avoid going to the grocery store um, for two weeks, three weeks? Like what's a reasonable expectation or are there any projected weeks coming up that are supposed to be very pivotal pivotal that we should know about to kind of avoid any outside activities? Right. It it depends on where you are. So I would think of each um, state and then maybe each city as like its own country. Right. So California is different from New York, is different from New Orleans, is different from Detroit and Chicago. Everything and even where I am in um, in Arkansas now, it's very different. Um, You know, and they're they're saying in California that probably this week or next week is going to be the bad time. They're saying in New York it was last week. So it's really, you know, very, very variable. I would say in general, if you don't have to go out, try not to go out. If you need to go to the grocery store and there's no way for you to get, um, you know, groceries delivered or for pickup or something like that, try to uh, go as infrequently as possible. So you don't need to go to the grocery store every day or every two days, maybe try to go every two weeks or something like that, just to decrease your exposure to the outside world. Um, And the same thing with other, you know, pharmacies and things of that nature. Just really try to pare things down as much as possible. For a lot of people, that's, you know, impossible to do if you still have to go to work, if you're an essential worker and things like that. But if you can stay home, stay home. Mm-hmm. And if you can't stay home, try to, you know, do it as infrequently as, as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. And with having deliveries, there's been the debate on how long the virus can live on cardboard and things like that with leaving it outside. Is there any truth or validity to leaving it outside for so many hours before bringing it inside? And that's supposed to reduce any risk or exposure. Right. So um, there is some validity to it, but all those studies or most of those studies were kind of what we call experimental models. So um meaning you take some cardboard, you put the virus on it in the perfect setting, so perfect temperature, perfect everything, and you leave it and you see what happens. Um, They're not really real world situations. So, you know, the temperature has to be a certain way, the wind has to be a certain way, all these things matter to see if the virus can really survive um, on different surfaces. In general, spraying things down, wiping things down is probably not a bad idea. Um, I don't think you need to keep things outside for days and days and days um, to kill the virus, but doing it for a reasonable time, a few hours, a day or so, and then taking it in after that. And I would say the same for groceries, just wiping stuff down just to be 100% safe um, or as safe as possible, maybe not 100%. Um, And then, you know, repackaging items if possible, things like that to decrease the amount of outside materials that you bring into your house. And that even goes with your shoes, with all that kind of stuff, just, you know, spray it down with Lysol, wipe it down with Clorox wipes, whatever it is to, um, to decrease your exposures as much as possible. Perfect. One last time, anybody else have questions before we wrap up? My, my only, it's like a personal, just her feelings. When the president was talking about his instinct, which we know that's bullshit because he has no instinct. But from a professional opinion, like I'm telling people, make masks because we're going to be masked up for the rest of our lives. We're going to have masks to 
go with all of our outfits and and I'm thinking, you know, it's going to come back in, in the fall and then we'll just start it all over again. Um, what is your instincts or what is your professional opinion about are we going to ever get to the other side of this, you know, and, and be completely and go back to what we knew as normal? Or is this mask and gloves and social distancing is kind of going to be our new normal? for a long, long time, if not forever. I think, um, I think life will be different going forward for sure. Um, I don't think we're going to be, you know, having to wear masks and gloves kind of going, you know, forever and ever and ever. I do. And that's for a few reasons. One is that I, I feel very confident that good vaccines and good treatments will come out of this. Um, if there was no way that we could have a vaccine or a treatment, then the only way to survive would be to always have a mask and always have gloves and to stay away from people. But I don't think that that's going to be the reality. I think we'll have good options for all those things. Um, and that will decrease our need um, or the, the necessity for us to, to be strictly isolated or to quarantine ourselves or to continue social distancing to such a degree that we are now. Um, you know, there's one thing uh, Dr. Fauci but on the news the other, maybe last week or so, and he said that he doesn't think Americans will shake hands again. And that's an interesting thought. And it's possible, right? It's possible that we'll come up with other ways to greet each other. Um, and I think time will tell. But time will tell, you know, what, what the appropriate way to do. But I don't think it's going to be as extreme as things are now where everyone needs to wear a face covering, everybody needs to wear gloves and all that kind of stuff. And on the topic of gloves, actually, I would say in general, um, gloves are, are okay to use, but really the, the big thing is soap and water, washing your hands and hand sanitizer. With gloves, I think we get this false sense of security. We start touching more things than we otherwise would touch. And you're just spreading, 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 spreading. So just wash your hands, use hand sanitizer. Gloves, if you, you know, are in a situation where it's really very sketchy, but in general, you probably don't need them. The face coverings, I, you know, I think everyone should use them. And clearly, everybody can't have the, um, you know, the most uh, uh, sophisticated kind of mask situation, that, you know, like they have in the uh, intensive care units and things like that, which would really be the gold standard type of mask to, to, you know, with a lot of certainty, filter out this virus from the air. But a mask and a face covering is better than no face covering. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we just need to do what we can do to protect ourselves and protect our families. And um, I think the scientific machine is chugging along and it's going at a faster speed than I've ever seen it go. Um, you know, we're getting new scientific articles out every week on COVID-19, new data out every week. And people are just working constantly, constantly, constantly trying to get this vaccine under uh, underway and to get these medications underway so that we we have good options for people that work and that are safe and um, won't do more harm than good, which is kind of, I think, what most of us want. We have another question. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Hi, everybody. Um, I know that we need to either leave our shoes outside or leave them at the, inside the doorway, spray them uh, when we come in. If we have only been out walking and not have been like to the grocery store and before we were coming in, taking our clothes off, throwing them in a washing machine and washing them. If we have not been to the grocery store and have only been out walking, uh, do we need to take these clothes off and wash them or can we keep them off? That's a good question. So <laughs> it's inside clothes versus outside clothes, the, the great debate. But I, in general, would say if you have not been in contact with crowds of people or a lot of people, you probably don't need to be as um, strict with that. Um, so for instance, I walk my dogs and I don't see anybody at all. And I don't necessarily, you know, change everything when I come inside. And I think that's probably okay to do. Your shoes, I think no matter where you're walking, just leave them at the door and spray them down because you just never know. Shoes can track so much stuff inside of a home whether it's something like COVID-19 or other things. Um, and that's, I think, pretty well established. But for clothes, there's no good you know, indication that just being out in the air, in the environment, without other people around, is going to put 
this virus on your clothes and then you need to really be aggressive with changing and things like that. I have a follow up if it's okay. Of course. Um, if we're just walking in our community, should we wear a mask? And we're not would, coming into contact with anyone. I would have a mask on your person just in case. So I think if you, there's nobody around, just like if you're in your backyard, for instance, you don't need to wear a mask. But if you're walking, you may inevitably come in contact with a neighbor or somebody that you're not expecting to see. And I would have a mask, you know, in your pocket or something like that, just in case that situation arises. Thank you. Keela, do you have anything that you think people should be mindful of? Maybe anything that I didn't touch on or ask? I think, you know, this idea of uh, asymptomatic carriers and then even pre-symptomatic people is a big one. And, you know, just because you don't feel bad doesn't mean that you couldn't have this virus and potentially pass it along to others. So I think we, we just all have to be um, aware of that and kind of move within these next few months in a way that keeps ourselves safe, our families safe, our community safe, um, and we'll get through it on the other end. So I just want everybody to stay safe and to stay sane inside, um, which I know is a hard thing to do. And that's it. Akila, thank you so very much. Is there some way that people can contact you online? And if they have any questions, or I know you said you might be going to telehealth if they can um, mm -hmm. contact you. Yeah, definitely. You can. I'm on Instagram, Akila Jefferson, MD, and then also on, um, on Facebook, the same. Um, I put updates a few times a week and then um, I'm going to put updates about my practice uh, soon. So follow me there. And if you have any questions, please feel free to contact me. I'm happy to answer anything to be a resource for, um, for anybody as much as I can. Awesome. Thank you so much for all of the information. Thank you to all of you for joining us today. Please stay safe. Please stay healthy. And hopefully we will be talking to you soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Lonnie Swain Show podcast. Please visit my website, LonnieSwain.com, where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, check out companion blog posts, show notes, and lots of other cool stuff. This podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Buzzsprout, CastBox, Anchor, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and my website. I love and appreciate all of your feedback, so don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with at least three people who you think would enjoy it too or benefit from the information. Until next time, go where you are celebrated and appreciated, not just tolerated. Talk to you soon.